Welcome to episode 29 of That Classical Podcast. This time, Smetna and Marla. Stop! Hammer time! Hello! Hello! My name's Chris Bland. And my name's Kelly Harlock, and you're listening to episode 29 of That Classical Podcast. Absolutely. Today, we're going to be talking to you about two rather lovely composers, I think. <laughs> lovely chaps. Uh, Gustav Mahler, and what's his first name? Bedrich Smetner. Great pronunciation I'm there. I'm sorry, everyone. Okay, neither of us speak Czech, no. so Bed- Bedrich Smetner. Yeah, I think let's go, right. let's go with that. Mm. All right, let's go with that. Okay, uh, these guys were both running around about the same sort of time. We're talking late 1800s, early 1900s. Yeah, yeah, mid are. to late 18s. They're in the same part of the world. Marla's from Bohemia, now but, Austria. Yeah, right. But the thing is, I don't think they ever actually crossed paths, even they though not? they sort of lived uh, okay. on top of each other. <laughs> Discuss. <laughs> they probably heard of each other, right? But for now, let's just, let's dive in to Smetna. Absolutely. Um, if you've listened to the show before, you know that it's now time for... Indeed, yes. The 60-second show where we have to condense a composer's life and works down into a minute. Wish me luck, everyone, because I'm crap at this. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to absolutely smash it, Harlock. All right, so here we go. Three, two, one, go! Bedrich Smetner was born in March 1824 near Prague. He started learning music at six years old, moved to Prague aged 15, skipped school a lot, went to concerts instead, heard Liszt playing and was like, yep, I want to do that. His dad found out he'd skipped school, made him leave Prague and move in with his uncle. A good plan, but instead Smetner just got off with his cousin a lot. What? Age 19, went back to Prague <laughs> to pursue musical career, became music teacher to a family of noblemen, did this for three years whilst also studying music himself. 1847, left to go on tour, epic fail, went back to Prague, became mixed with Liszt, opened a piano institute, 1849, married child of sweetheart Katerina, 1849, popped out four daughters, 1850, became court pianist at Prague Castle, tried to write a symphony, but it was crap. Sadly, those of his family passed away and his wife got sick. Seconds. Moved to Sweden alone with, uh, in 1856. Achieved great professional and social recognition there. Super fast. Found a mistress. Also wrote another symphony and loads of piano works. 1859, his wife dies. He goes out and hangs out with Liz for a bit. Falls in love with someone's sister and marries her in 1860. Tries to become director of Prague Conservatory. 1864 fails. Does some good acting at the theatre. Right, starts writing most famous opera, The Bart of Bride. Premiers probably in 1870. Generally, people think his operas are quite crap. 1874, got ill. Ten became seconds. deaf in one ear. Resigned from the theatre. Went deaf in both ears. Hated his wife, but didn't divorce her. Wrote Mavlas, Premier in 1882. Became hero of Nicholas Nicholas Asylum in Prague and died 12th of May 1884. All right, one second over. We'll give you that. Oh, thanks. I'll take it. Um, Okay, so an eventful life. He (laughs) got off with his cousin and lots of other people by the sound of it. He got off with his... Yeah, he got off with his cousin because his dad, when he moved to Prague and went to school, and actually I think he got bullied quite badly at school for being this, like, country bumpkin. Just a fun fact. His dad found out he skipped school and he was like, right, you're going to go move in with your uncle and you're going to... In Bel-Air. You're going to move in with your (laughs) auntie and uncle in Bel-Air. In Bel-Air, right, exactly. Don't know if there was an auntie there. Um, He was indeed the fresh prince. Um, (laughs) But yeah, it was a great plan, but like, he just started getting off with his cousin and that, you know, backfired a little okay. bit. Um, and then he married people and... He married people and do you know what, mate? He was just... People thought he was a bit rubbish. I feel like this oh, is a hey. bit of a theme with a lot of the composers we yeah, do. Yeah, like not really appreciated in their lifetime. Because now that we bloody love them, mm. but at the time people just weren't impressed. In fact, someone said around the time Smetna was writing loads of operas, they said, Czech opera sickens to death at least once annually because he tried to write an opera once a year and it was always terrible. Oh, um, poor Smet. But yeah, poor Smet. He also was a bit of a twat. Like, oh, no. his wife got really, really sick. Okay. And he was like, okay, bye. And then went to Sweden and like started getting off with the mistress when he oh, was there. Dear. And then when his wife actually died, he went and hung out with Liszt for a bit, the composer Liszt. 
and like fancied someone's sister that was like hanging around List's house and then right. married that sister a year after his wife died, not even a year. Uh, it's a bit, I don't know, uh, it's a, a bit, bit tricky. <laughs> and I reckon he, he did do a bit of bonking around because, you know, he went he went a bit crazy in his older years and he went deaf and yeah. everyone was like, oh yeah, you know, it's just, you know, some dementia. It was syphilis. It was syphilis, lads. Literally everyone had syphilis. Yeah, and of course you went mad because it was treated with what? Mercury. Mercury! Nailed it, lads. Anyway, that's a bit about Smetana. Let's Great. just let's just launch into the first piece because I think that's where we're going to find... The true meaning <laughs> of his life in his music. Indeed, let's do it. So the first piece we're doing today, we've had so many people asking us to do, so thank you for your patience, everybody. Mm. Today, we're going to talk about Mavlast. Right? You're what? <laughs> Get out of my house. Uh, Mavlast means my homeland in Czech, okay? Okay. And Smetna combined the idea of symphonic poems, my fave, uh, telling a story through a piece of music. Mm-hmm. Combined that with uh, writing music on a really nationalistic theme, which Ooh. was Doriger in uh, the late 1800s, which is sure. where he wrote So, it. I mean, I guess you got people famously like Sibelius who are right, writing exactly. Finlandia, stuff yes. like that, stuff that's symphonic and big but also super nationalistic absolutely right Right. great knowledge Chris (laughs) Um, so Mavlas is actually made of six different symphonic poems and he composed it between 1874 and 1879 and they were all written and premiered totally separately okay but nowadays they're usually performed as one massive Mavlast experience with six movements lovely so let's let's dig in to the details here let's let's smash it the first symphonic poem is called Visheharad you're welcome, everyone. Which means the high castle, okay? And it's indeed about a high castle, which okay. you can still visit um, in Prague. Once Ooh. the seat of power for Bohemian kings of yore. <laughs> um, and he wrote this between September and November in 1874. Now, as we just discussed, old Smetty, he started to go deaf by this point in one ear. Right. So he'd had to resign from his job at the theatre, which is what I mentioned in the, the biog yeah. there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and he'd started to hear sort of buzzing noises, annoying noises, and a Ooh. permanent kind of high, oh, almost tinnitus, like tinnitus, yeah. yeah. So this was the only piece in Mavlast that he wrote when he could still hear something. Oh, no way. Yeah, 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 because he lost hearing in the other ear just before he finished writing it. Oh, well, so the rest of it, he just had to write it down and be like, I really I hope really this hope sounds I really hope that doesn't sound rubbish. Yeah, exactly. So <laughs> this poem, this piece is all about approaching the castle, the history of the castle and the collapse of it. Yeah. And then it ends quietly depicting the river Vltava, which leads me neatly on oh. because the next movement is called... Voltava, hey. also known as Die Moldau, which is the, the river's German name. This is the most famous piece from Mavlast. It's the one that everybody knows. It's played loads on the radio. Sure. It's the nuts, okay? <laughs> and he wrote this in about three weeks at the end of 1874. Totally deaf, right? Wow. And yeah, it just depicts this famous river. And it also sounds like Pop Goes the Weasel, okay? Really? That is... Which came first? <laughs> He'd clearly gone deaf and he was like, something's coming to me, something's coming to me. (laughs) (gasps) the weasel. That's it. But anyway, you can make up your mind later because that's the one we're going to listen to. All right, super. The third poem is about this female warrior called Sharka. Uh, The next one is called Chesky Huahayu, apparently. This rolls off the tongue. (laughs) Is that definitely how it's pronounced? I don't know. But it means from Bohemia's woods and fields, goes on about that. Then we've got another one called Tabor, about the city of Tabor in the south of Bohemia. Uh Then we've got Blanik, named for the mountain 
mountain Blanik. Um, <laughs> apparently inside of this mountain, a ton of knights are just chilling out, led nice. by St. Wenceslas. Um, and whenever the country is in dire need, they just bust out and save the day. Amazing. So the whole thing, collection of like, look at all the nice natural scenery we exactly. have here. And look at all the knights we have protecting That's us. It. And look at the it's cities just, we have. Totally. And it's a right. celebration of, of the landmarks and the kind of countryside and okay. everything like that. So, right, we're going to listen to Voltava. And I just want to read a few of Svetna's own words about this piece. Perfect. The course of the Voltava is through woods and meadows, through landscapes where a farmer's wedding is celebrated, the round dance of the mermaids in the night's moonshine, on the nearby rocks lean proud castles, palaces and ruins aloft. The Voltava swirls into the St John's Rapids, then it widens and flows towards Prague, past the Bishaharad, and then majestically vanishes into the distance. does sound like that it absolutely it does, does sound, sound like, like that. that but apart from pop goes the weasel yeah i felt like i was on a majestic riverboat cruise it's pretty cool isn't it yeah i really you have to listen to the beginning of that as well because it's really it it really goes back to what he said about the river flowing and all it's mm. very playful and then it sounds very like proud if that yeah, makes sense absolutely which i guess figures into the whole it being i love being from here absolutely. so much yeah, yeah totally and it reminds me, it makes me think of being in like a grand ballroom as well. It's got that kind of, <laughs> it, I don't know, it's just beautiful. Yeah, yeah. It's like a dance as well. I like it. So I would say Voltava is, is the best out of the six, mm. but do go and listen to the other five because, as we know, he was totally deaf when he wrote <laughs> those, which is really impressive. So go and check them out. No pun intended. That classical podcast. Next, we're doing another piece by Bedrick Smetner, old old Smetty, the Smetmeister, <laughs> Betty Betty Smetty, Betty Smetty, Too sure. Well. Um, and that piece is String Quartet Number no. One in E Minor. From my life is Ooh. what it's called, um, like Bon Jovi. It sounds like an album title, though, doesn't it? It really does. Or it's a really very, bad yeah. autobiography. Uh, <laughs> um, but Gary I'm Neville there. from my life. <laughs> Absolutely, Gaz. So I know that I could have done The Bartered Bride. So The Bartered Bride is a really, really, really famous opera by Smetner. It's played on Classic FM all the time. If you want to hear it, that's where you should go. Uh, But I think that this piece, The String Quartet, really shows just a great deal of, like, variation i guess in mm. smetner's like compositional skills okay. i just really really liked it <laughs> and it's another one from the kind of end of his life really okay basically just an intimate confession depicting the kind Ooh. of higgledy piggledy course of his life um i love how you paused after higgledy as if there was gonna higgledy, be another word a piggledy <laughs> course of his life um, but so basically i i was reading some quotes from him about this uh, the internet Just don't trust it. Because one of the quotes was, he viewed the quartet as four instruments speaking amongst themselves in something like a friendly circle. But then the other version of that quote was, four instruments speaking among themselves about the things that torture me. (laughs) So I don't know what Fedrick Smetner said. But he said one of those things. Um, Either way, it's a bit sad. So 
There are four movements. He finished writing them in at December 1876 when he was about 52. Mm-hmm. And they premiered in 1878. And Dvorak, our mate Dvorak, was the bloody violist. Oh, that's Top cool. drawer. Top Dvorak. Am I right, ladies? God. <laughs> okay, <laughs> moving on. So uh, we've got four sketches of periods from Smetner's life. That is what this is, basically. Ooh. The first one. Allegro vivo, appassionato, uh, basically Bedrish sort of romantic ideals and his life and the music and stuff yeah. like that when he was young. Then the second one is Allegro moderato, alla polka, uh, really happy when Smetna was known as this like dance musician, <laughs> not like a, <laughs> like a DJ, just getting all the babes. And then you know, like people thought of him as like a dance song writer. Okay, cool. Uh, and a composer of bangers. And then the next one, uh, it's totally different. Largo Sostenuto, real great emotional depth. Mm. He said, it reminds me of the happiness of my first love, the uh. girl who later became my faithful wife. I mean, he says that. Was he his cheated. first love not his cousin? He cheated. <laughs> <laughs> I think all you've established. <laughs> very, very true. But also, he cheated on his wife with a mistress yeah. in Sweden and left her like totally ill with all his kids. Betty so, Smetty, you're all over the drink, shop. Whatever, Bedrick, you're a bit of a knob. Um, and then the <laughs> final one is Vivace, this one is weirdly full of joy. If you think about it, it's meant to be the end of his life, right. where he like suffered so much. But it's weirdly full of joy. It kind of celebrates all the nationalistic stuff that he wrote. Mm. But then the joy is sort of rudely interrupted by this shooting high note signalling his deafness. Oh, dear. And then it kind of goes a bit slow and sad, and then it it just fades away really sadly. I can't oh. explain it. You should listen to it. It's quite something, actually. That sounds really sad. Yeah, <laughs> it is. It is Vivi sad. Oh, dear. Um, and also there's this, there's a viola solo at the beginning of the first movement and then this, yeah, this high kind of harmonic E on the, the violin in the last movement mm. and they represent the ringing in his ears that preceded his oh, deafness. Like dude. he was trying to convey to all his, his listeners, his, <laughs> his fans, um, yeah, what, so what he was going yeah. through. So um, wow. also, did he, did he know what note it was? I guess. Well, maybe. maybe he did, yeah. Anyway, we're going to listen to a bit of Largo Sostenuto. So that's the sustained, deep, emotional one. That's really, yeah, the super deep, right. like deep feelings. Here we go. called it cousin love <laughs> did that did that evoke memories of your first love uh sure yeah i thought did that evoke memories <laughs> of your cousin <laughs> i was like uh what <laughs> sorry that's not what i meant but you know what <laughs> cousin or no that is a beautiful piece is it i agree not? i agree like you i guess it, you it's Similar to Mavlast, you feel that he's really putting his soul into yeah, it. Yeah, right? definitely, definitely. He's clearly sort of quite an emotional composer, is that yeah, fair to say? Yeah, yeah, Hundy P, Hundy P. So that's my favourite part of, mm. of that piece, especially. So that was the Largo Sostenuto. But the first movement, the Allegro Vivo Appassionato, that is a banger. So All I right. highly suggest you go listen to that as well. So that is our little bit on Bedrish Smetner. Lovely. What um, else should we go listen to? I him? think, you know, I didn't do The Butter Bride. I didn't want to just 
pile loads of opera on our listeners. It's it's an okay opera. Okay. It's all right. You, if you all want right. to listen to it, please sure. go ahead. Otherwise, he's got some dances because he was a great dance a dance musician. <laughs> yeah, <of course. laughs> and you know what? With with Smetana, it's more just bits and pieces. I think okay. he's got some lovely string quartets as All well. Right. String quartet number two is fab. So just go and, and go crazy. So digging around a bit outside of Mavlas. Yeah, I I think you should. Everything about Smetana is, is Mavlas. So just like right, think yeah. outside the box, lads and lassies. Lovely stuff. And tell me what you find. Oh, the glass Right, so now it's my turn. Gonna talk to you about Gustav Mahler. Gus, 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 as you called him once upon a time. I did, yes. So Mahler's one of these composers that inspires like rabid devotion by some people. Mm, yeah, I've noticed actually. Yeah, like people are people who are into Mahler are really into Mahler. Honey P, yeah. Uh, I would say I'm sort of into Marla. I think he's all right. I think he's all right. Wouldn't kick good. him out of bed, you know what I mean? Sure, my musical bed. <laughs> right. As well as my musical bed, I'm going to include him in my 60 seconds bed. Let's do it. What a link that was. It was a wonderful link. Right, Chris, are you ready? Are you steady? Yep. Go. Gustav Mahler was born in 1860, died in 1911. He was born to a German-speaking Jewish family in Bohemia. Gustav was exposed to a whole variety of music at a young age. He was an excellent piano player, but was absent-minded at school. His father sent him to another school in Prague, uh, but Gustav did not like it there, so he went back. Uh, his dad did support his musical career, though, and with the support went to the Vienna Conservatory in 1875, where he studied piano and later composition. Uh, he got his first conducting job in 1880 in a tiny wooden hall in a provincial town in what is now Austria. He worked his way up over the next 17 years through various provincial opera houses through to Budapest and Hamburg, became artistic director of the Vienna Court Opera at the age of 37. Um, he would hold this post for 10 years but then was kicked out because of anti-Semitism basically oops uh, it's very difficult to work with though a huge stickler for details however despite all this and his kind of mad conducting style he was generally regarded not only as one of the best conductors of his day but ever uh, 1908 goes to New York to work with the Met Opera the next year works with the New York Philharmonic 15 seconds. did loads of concerts there with quite taxing programmes um, he loved the outdoors but had a, a weak heart physically he wasn't that strong 10 seconds. Um, in late 1910 he fell ill while in New York a condition to which he was prone thanks to his uh, weak heart travelled back to Vienna his condition worsened and he died in May 1911 59 seconds. Nailed it, nailed it, nailed it. Wow, okay, that's quite a life he had. Uh, what is this thing about his weird conducting style? Tell me more. <laughs> right, me okay, more so he was primarily a conductor throughout his his life. Uh, so he would conduct during the seasons, then in the summer he would ret- retreat to uh, this cottage he had, and he had, I think, yes! three in total. Do you remember yes, we mentioned I that remember. in the previous episode? Yes. Uh, so he would spend his summers composing and the rest of the time conducting. Yeah. And so he was apparently really difficult to work with so he was mm. massively massively detail focused so he would make orchestras rehearse and re-rehearse things that they were already familiar with oh uh, and do it for ages and ages uh, he was also really authoritarian with it classic uh, apparently also had a very uh, nasal very high-pitched voice which was quite annoying to listen Hot to lad. yeah and so there are <laughs> yeah and so there are lots of accounts from the time of his conducting style as well apparently he was quite a sort of expressive wild conductor Chris is waving his arms right now by the way yeah sorry I haven't quite caught on to the whole audio medium yeah And so there's some caricatures of him from the time of him just like waving his arms all over the shop yeah yeah but having said all that was regarded as a pretty top dog conductor nice. was really really well respected for that awesome. uh so yeah he struggled politically throughout his life quite a lot basically so he constantly felt like an outsider and i'll go on to talk about that a bit in a second with the the first piece that i'm going to mention but so he was born in bohemia which is sort of modern day 
Austria, yeah. Czechia, that sort of area. Yeah. But he was born to a German-speaking Jewish family, which made him sort of a double outsider because they mm. weren't Czech and they were Jewish. Um, yes. And so when he got this job in Vienna, he was the artistic director of the Vienna Court Opera. Right. Basically, there was huge, huge anti-Semitic backlash against him, basically. Oh, no. Yeah, so he overcame this by sort of playing up his own Germanness. So he would program okay. Mozart and Wagner and people like, oh like that. God. being yeah. Look how German I am. Mm. But eventually, this, this sort of backlash to him did force him out of the job. That's and so he had to find work elsewhere. And that's sort of why he went to New York as well, because Got there was it. bigger Jewish community there. And not directly, but this also contributed to after his death, actually. His music wasn't really performed for ages, for a few decades after his death. So in Germany, certainly in the first few decades of the 1900s. Oh, yes, the rather famous ones, yeah. Yeah, his music wasn't really very popular amongst the Nazis. I wonder why. Crazy. (laughs) Um, But it was actually in the 1960s that people like Bernstein, Leonard Bernstein, sort of pushed his music to the the forefront and said, actually, this guy's got some some good tunes. Hot lads, yeah. Absolutely. So the first piece by him we're going to talk about is called Lied von der Erde, which means Song of the Earth. I will smash it. I love this piece. Do you? Yeah, it's really lovely. I really love it too. Yeah. So this, uh, the premiere of this piece was actually given posthumously. The first one was in 1911, right. just a few months after he died. Right. It's dramatic as balls. I can tell you that for free. <laughs> um, so it... <laughs> So much so that Marla actually hesitated to put this piece before the public, basically because it was so relentlessly it was negative. So dramatic as balls. Yeah, which is unusual even for him. And he said, Won't people go home and shoot themselves? Whoa! Okay. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Um, I know, right? Yeah, Dramatic. That is intense. So I mentioned before that he felt like an outsider and yeah. for a lot of his life. So he took lots of his musical inspiration from music that he'd heard growing up. So folk songs, street music, that sort of stuff. Uh, and it's sort of been suggested by musicologists that he found this set of poetry that's based on Chinese poetry originally. So it was a German reworking of some old Chinese poetry. And that's what he based uh, Lied von der Erde on, basically. cool. So it was his way of... Because he felt sort of quite rootless because he moved around so much and was in this minority. Mm. So he sort of... By using this other really sort of outsider-y text, Mm. he thought that would give him a voice. So, the bit we're going to listen to is the first movement or poem. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a series of a few poems strung together. Now, before we listen to it, Kelly, <laughs> we must discuss... Oh, God. <laughs> the Curse of the Ninth. Oh, no. The oh. Curse of the Ninth. Tell me more. So, this was a theoretical so-called curse right. that sort of came about because no one since Beethoven, or no major composer since Beethoven, had written more than nine symphonies before dying. Is it like the 27 Club? That's nice! exactly what it is. Yes! Yeah, okay, so the 27 great. Club is like where rock and roll musicians all die at age 27. Like Amy Winehouse was 27. Kurt Cobain, Jimi Kurt Hendrix. Yeah, everyone. All those guys. I'm 27 in three days. <laughs> oh, <laughs> so dear. I'm <laughs> Anyway, please continue. So no major composer, well, theoretically, sort of, after Beethoven had written more than nine symphonies. So at this point, Mahler had written eight symphonies. Oh. And he was like, I'm not going to tempt fate with this one. Oh, no. Nice. So he didn't call this a symphony, even though it basically is a symphony. I like that. I like so that a lot. It, 
Lied von der Erde. Mm. After this, he did write a symphony which he called his Ninth Symphony. Right. Then started his tenth, but died before he could finish Stop it. Stop it! Oh. No, yeah, he did. So he was also spooky. Technically subject to the curse oh, of the night. No, the curse of the night. Anyway, <laughs> so we're going to go on, as I mentioned, listen to the first part of this non-symphony symphony. Brilliant. And it's called Das Trinklied vom Jammer der Erde, which means the drinking song of Earth's misery. Let's do it. Um, wow, Dramatic, right? that um, that lulls one into a false sense of security, doesn't it? Well, it does a, a bit. bit. So the um, I don't know if you heard the words that the tenor was singing there. Also, that's another cool thing that he put loads of singers in his symphonies yeah, as well. That's quite unusual, doesn't it? Yeah. So the words that the tenor is singing there are "Dunkel ist das Leben, ist der Tod," which means "Dark is life, is death." Um, which he sings a whole bunch of times throughout this whole movement, mm. each time getting a semitone higher and the orchestra gets even like louder. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's incredibly difficult to sing. Mm. And you heard at the end there, the tenor was singing really, really high. Yeah. That's like battle against the loud orchestra. Yeah. And then it goes, bam, to finish. I love that. That's my favourite bit. Yeah. <laughs> so he wrote this primarily in 1907, so a few years before it was actually performed. Mm. And this was a, just a dreadful year for him, basically, oh, which no. explains why he kind of was writing this incredibly Intense. sad, dramatic music. Yeah. So this was the year when he got kicked from his job in Vienna, thanks to like political okay. manoeuvring and okay. uh, the really nasty anti-Semitism. Yeah. Not good. Uh, his eldest daughter died from illness, oh. and he himself was diagnosed with the, the heart defect that would later be the thing that killed him. Oh, poor guy, that's so, sad. So, yeah, not, not a, not a tip-top year for him. But we got a nice piece of music out of it. We got a beautiful piece of music. The Classical Podcast. Now, because I'm a consummate professional... Right. There's going to be a link between uh, the previous piece and this one. Stop it. <laughs> wow. And namely, the those three horrible things that happened to poor old Gus Gus. Okay. <laughs> uh, so the next piece we're going to talk about is his sixth symphony, mm-hmm. which he wrote between 1903 and 1906. So I'll go on to explain how, how they're connected. Right. But before I do, have you ever heard of something called a Mahler box? No, what's that? A Mahler that? box. So, uh, you have your normal range of percussion <laughs> instruments, right? Your timpanis, your bass drums, your yeah. xylophones. Nice. All that jazz. Loving it. Triangle. Triangle, yeah. indeed. Mm. For this one, he just notated it in the, the score as just hammer. Just let you what? make up your own interpretation for that. So, what? he specifically said that the sound he wanted for this instrument should be brief and mighty, but dull in resonance and with a non-metallic character like the fall of an axe. Bloody hell. I know. So this noise, this instrument, <laughs> appears in the last movement of this symphony, and people didn't really know what to do, what to make of it. So sometimes they did it with like a bass drum or timpani. So or sorry, there's a bo- there's a physical box. Yeah, so what happened was Explain. people tried to do it with yeah. normal instruments first. Yeah. 
And then they were like, it's not big enough. <laughs> so it's basically like a competition now between various orchestras. And while I was researching this, I was looking at just pictures and videos posted by various orchestras mm. about their own specific Marla boxes that they oh, build. Oh my God, that's amazing. We should so, put those on our Twitter, right? Oh God, definitely. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. There's some amazing videos <laughs> of just like... Let's be real, they're orchestral musicians, so they're not the most, like, strapping of people. Oh, just yeah. holding, like, enormous sledgehammers and, like, <laughs> absolutely thwacking them down on these huge boxes that they've constructed. What are the boxes made of? Often just, like, big bits of wood. Bloody I know, hell. and I've seen them being played with, like, just sledgehammers, or they've built their own hammers out of literal, like, tree trunks. This is an actual joke? Like, what? Well, no, it's, it's a legit <laughs> piece of instrumentation that they want to try and Boom. recreate faithfully Boom. uh but it's absolutely amazing so i was watching this interview with um oh i've forgotten what orchestra it was now i think it was the royal liverpool philharmonic oh yeah and uh so obviously musicians always tend to have to follow the conductor but he says this is actually one of the very very rare cases where the conductor kind of has to follow the percussionist because it's so big and so loud that it does need to be in time with the music and if you're holding this, like, massively heavy hammer, by the time you started to swing yeah, it, yeah, you can't yeah. really time it that well. So you kind of just have oh to go God. with it. Oh, my God. This is amazing. Yeah. So it's it's a really cool sound. It's just this enormous, cavernous Bang. ringing. Anyway, how this relates to what I was saying before, <laughs> right. uh, in Mahler's original setting of the of the symphony, the, the hammer plays three times, basically, strikes three times on this box. And so lots of people looking at this piece afterwards have tried to connect those to those three terrible things that happened to him. So his daughter dying, oh. him getting ill, and him getting kicked out of that job. Oh, that's sad. Uh, the only slight problem with that theory is all those things happened in 1907, and this piece was finished in 1906. Okay. So, right. so it's... No. No. No, 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 no. This is like Harry Potter fan fiction. It's just like... It's, <laughs> it's, yeah. it's slightly retrospective, but yeah. there's all sorts of superstitions around it, and um, most modern performances, in fact, only play one or two blows of the hammer rather than all three. Oh. I mean, it's for musical okay. reasons or whatever. Whatever, mate, yeah. However, having said all that, the bit I'm going to play to you now from the symphony doesn't involve any hands at all. Oh. It just sounds really great. Let's listen. Yeah, so, sorry, no hammers involved no in that No hammers, bit. but it was intense. Yeah, so he would often write a piece and keep the core musical ideas, but often reorchestrate it, so that means switching around the instrumental parts, adding more instruments here and there. Mm. And what I just really like about that bit is just the way he uses his instrumentation. Mm. So loads of really deep woodwinds, you've got some bass clarinets in there, which nice. you don't hear all too often. No. Uh, loads of low brass, so trombones, tubers, they're all working together to get this really sort of, like, 
punchy it's sort of a bit sound. dirgy isn't it almost. yeah it it's is it's like yeah. very crunchy and like <laughs> very good uh, so the whole symphony in fact is sometimes referred to as the tragic that's its nickname of the course. tragic symphony nice yeah um, story of my life that's <laughs> what everyone refers to me as <laughs> Uh, although yeah Marla wasn't a particularly big fan of this nickname he just called it his sixth symphony and yeah. other people were like no I'm going to call it your tragic symphony <laughs> I just think it's, it's a really fantastic piece so that the, primarily his output was symphonies he obviously did a bunch of other stuff here and there like mm. songs and but really his his main work is in symphonies yeah agreed so we already mentioned symphony number three i think yes, was it, it in was, a previous yeah, episode yeah. this is number six mm-hmm. uh and if you want to go and listen to other ones or other things by Mahler, uh i mean any of the symphonies are good yeah. one i would particularly recommend that's incredible is his eighth symphony which is nicknamed the symphony of a thousand uh, all right mate yeah. Well, I know because uh, it was nicknamed <laughs> that by his agent actually, because its premiere performance featured over 150 orchestra members and over 800 choral singers. Oh my god! So really, like he wasn't shy of adding more instruments no. when he needed Brilliant. to. Brilliant. Uh, Again, Mahler did not like this nickname, clearly just wasn't a fan of his work being <laughs> yeah. given nicknames, yeah. but it sort of stuck. And I think even if you don't go and get to see this live, it's definitely worth watching on YouTube rather mm. than just listening to a recording of it. Yeah. Mahler's definitely not really like a background music kind of guy. I think he's someone whose music really benefits from without wanting to sound too uh, highfalutin but like active listening I think sort of <laughs> yeah. sitting and focusing and doing nothing but just listening to his music his music particularly really benefits from that I okay. think yeah. alright well I will be sure to listen actively you must. You must. to some Marla then <laughs> listeners please join me The Classical Podcast and that was our episode on Gustav Mahler and Bedri Smetana. Yes, indeed. We hope you enjoyed it. We do. If you did enjoy it, please tell us how much <laughs> um, by going or indeed to how little. all of our, indeed uh, going to all of our social media pages, what aka vis a vis the following. For Twitter, we are at that classical. Instagram at that classical. Insta, Facebook. Just type us into Facebook. That classical podcast. If you want to just like get to the meat of it all, go to thatclassicalpodcast.com and we have a little glossary that we've written there for you with all the words that we use in the episodes and yeah, all the exactly. stuff. Just ha- check it out. Uh, you can find us on Spotify. Type that classical podcast into Spotify. Not only uh, can you find our good old playlist featuring every single track we ever mention on this yes. podcast, mm. as well as other ones related to it, mm. but we are now on Spotify ourselves. Yes. You might even be listening to this on Spotify Happy right now. Day. How exciting mm. is that? If you can't remember all that, just go to the website, thatclassicalpodcast.com. And finally, we would love it if you log into iTunes and you give us a cheeky little five-star review. Absolutely. We would be very, very grateful. Otherwise, lads and lassies, we will see you next time. See you in the next one. Bye. Bye. Stop. Hammer time.